from the Southeast Florida studios of the law firm Trip Scott in Fort Lauderdale. This is Politics and Sunshine, a continuing series of interviews with local and national subject matter experts tackling the issues that make you stand up. In this episode, Trip Scott CEO Ed Paswali talks to author, political commentator, and expert on China affairs, Gordon Chang. Here's your host, Ed Paswali. Today we're joined by Gordon Chang. Gordon is a Gladstone Institute senior fellow and an expert on relations between China and the U.S. Gordon, welcome. Thank you so much. Secretary Yellen made a point that former President Trump's policies toward China left America vulnerable, and she mentioned that he failed to make proper investments that could have made America more competitive. What's your thoughts on that? President Trump took five decades of U.S. engagement policy and broke it. And essentially what he did was he decided that decisions had to be made on the basis of American interests, not the interests of others. And in some sense, that was important because for too long, the United States really had been um, helping um, bolster China and, and in many ways undermining the American ability to manufacture and to compete in global markets. So that was good what Trump did. Now, a lot of people do complain, as Secretary Yellen did, that we ignored our allies. And in a sense, that is always a problem. But we got to remember that uh, we had given our allies for decades, we'd given our allies essentially a veto over American policies. And so we ended up with a lot of lowest common denominator solutions that didn't work. So clearly that approach had failed and it was important for President Trump to try something new, which he did. Now, President Trump's policies could have been refined, but nonetheless, I think they in general put the United States on a much better footing. His approach was better and um, it's up to the Biden administration to make them work now. Well, the question is, how is the Biden administration doing with that? There's a question as to whether the Biden administration that has now passed the CHIPS Act and investing millions of dollars. How do we move forward from here with China? I think that the most important thing is we've got to acknowledge the maliciousness of the Chinese regime. In that engagement policy, we thought it was in our interest to promote China, to strengthen the country. And although we do need a strong China, we don't need a strong Communist Party because the Communist Party views the United States as an existential threat. And it views us as an existential threat, whether our policies are friendly or not, not because of anything that we say or do, but because of who we are. You have an insecure regime in Beijing that's worried about the inspirational impact of American values and form of governance on the, Ameri- uh, on the Chinese people. And that means we're not going to have amicable relations with China as long as the Communist Party is in power. So we've got to come to that important realization. And if we do, then I think that we can craft policies. So, for instance, you mentioned the CHIPS Act, which I think is in general a good thing. And I know that it means industrial policy means less efficiency, but we have ignored American resiliency. We need to be resilient. We cannot be dependent on China for critical goods. And so that's a step in the right direction. Now, one can criticize various aspects of the CHIPS Act, as many people have, but I believe that it was important to do. And that really is a continuation of uh, general uh, thought in the Trump administration that we needed to become resilient. Um, So that's a good move on the part of President Biden. 
And so talking about President Biden, he met with Chinese leaders on a number of topics. And how do we get the Chinese to curb the exporting of fentanyl into the U.S.? Well, President Biden's approach on that was was wrong. We have, and, and this has been true of previous administrations, we have viewed the Chinese fentanyl gangs as criminals, but we've got to recognize that they operate with the approval and the support of the Communist Party. So, for instance, these fentanyl producers um, are large and well-organized and could not operate in, in the Communist Party's near-total surveillance state without approval of uh, Beijing. But we also know that Chinese diplomats provide cover to the fentanyl gangs. The gangs launder their proceeds through the Chinese state banking system. Some of them are actually state producers, state-owned producers, and China uh, inspects virtually every container that leaves China. So we should not view this as um, you know, cooperation with the Communist Party. The Communist Party is the criminal here. And um, because of that, um, it means that our, our measures have to be far stronger and directed at China's ruling group, not trying to co uh, cooperate with them as President Biden attempted to do on November 15th. Do you believe that's the main difference between what the Biden administration is doing and what President Trump did before and possibly what President Trump may do with another four years? A recognition well, that the Chinese Communist Party is the problem? I don't think Trump um, actually came to that realization. He tried um, in 2018, had an agreement with Xi Jinping to curb fentanyl use, which very much resembles the agreement that President Biden announced on November 15th. Um, so no American president has come to that realization because to do that means that we have to acknowledge that China killed, for instance, 70,000 Americans last year. 70,000 Americans, according to preliminary CDC estimates, were killed with doses of illegal fentanyl. Now, um, there is some illegal fentanyl produced in India, and some is produced by the cartels in Mexico, but very little. We're talking virtually 100% of the fentanyl that comes into our country comes from precursors that are manufactured in China. So um, to come to that realization, uh, means that we have to hold the Chinese Communist Party to account for murder, because that's what we're talking about here. And because that is such a big step, it's going to be very hard, I think, for the Biden administration to do that because they want to cooperate with China. Remember, Biden actually um, lifted sanctions on a Chinese institution in order to get approval from Xi Jinping for um, trying to reduce fentanyl shipping. So basically, we gave them something tangible for a promise that Xi Jinping has made before and dishonored. So this is really on us. We see what the Chinese are doing, um, and we should come to a realization that uh, we cannot agree with them to reduce fentanyl shipments. That's part of um, the problem with the United States right now. Well, are we simply agreeing that you get to commit less egregious acts, not more. I mean, they're still egregious acts. I mean, the, the realization, how does an American president, regardless of whether it's President Trump or President Biden, come to the, the what would be a provocative conclusion that the, that the leadership of the Chinese government is effectively a, a criminal organization when it comes to fentanyl? First of all, um, the president of the United States needs to say that in public. And um, what I thought was one of the most disgraceful statements I've ever heard 
was from National Security Council Coordinator John Kirby on the 16th of November when he said that Xi Jinping told President Biden that he did that he see did not want to see any one Amer- any one more American die from fentanyl. John Kirby had to know that Xi Jinping was being extremely cynical and lying to President Biden. And yet for John Kirby to propagate that view when he knew that it was a cynical one, that Xi Jinping was lying, was wrong in itself. So we need to have the president say, look, the Communist Party is doing all of these things. Lay out the facts. Let the American people come to the conclusion themselves that Communist Party is, in fact, trying to kill Americans and is very successful at it. And once we come to that realization, then um, the various measures as to what we do become much simpler. We need to sever trade, investment, technical cooperation. Um, We need to do all these things um, because we could not tolerate the murder of one American, much less 70,000 a year. And you think that would be the course Do you think President Trump, as an example, would take a different approach in achieving what you've just laid out as a potential policy shift toward China as opposed to President Biden? I don't know what um, President Trump's campaign platform will be on this because it's not been issued. I think um, in general, Trump would take a much tougher line as he took during his four years as president, because he did, as I mentioned in the beginning, reorient American foreign policy. Also, we got to remember the dynamics, and that is that it would be Trump's last term, which means that he would be freer to take actions that he thought were necessary to protect America. He wouldn't be thinking about getting reelected. And so I think that there would be a sterner attitudes toward. Um, But, you know, whatever the next president does, we Americans have got to continue to talk about this to force our political leaders to take those measures that are adequate and necessary to protect American lives. So regardless of who our president's going to be, I'm still going to say the same things, and I hope others will as well. Do you believe there are inherent risks in taking that strong stance and and calling out the Chinese Communist Party with respect to fentanyl and the Americans that it's impacting? Are there other risks on the world stage? Are there other trade risks? Are there other military risks, some of those things that, uh, you know, I don't want to say a bigger picture, but certainly in other areas. Yes, to all of that. The risks, of course, are, are bigger. You know, through three decades of misguided China policy, especially the three decades after the Cold War, we have gotten ourselves into a position where there are no safe options. Every option carries significant risk. So we can't ignore those risks. Um, but um, those, those risks are what we have to take. And I think the most risky option of all is to continue with the policies that have created this disastrous situation in the first place. But in any event, um, no one gets to murder Americans. No, That's I, the bottom line. That has inherent risk by itself to allow that to occur. Yes, because it allows Xi Jinping to think that he can do other things. I mean, putting aside the moral aspects of this, which I can't do, by the way, But if you were to put aside the moral aspects, allowing the Chinese Communist Party to kill Americans with fentanyl and other drugs, because they're now developing, by the way, new drugs, um, you convince Chinese leaders that uh, we are not prepared to defend ourselves and that they therefore can take even more um, dangerous and murderous 
and monstrous acts against the United States. So this is an issue of deterrence failing. And it's already failed for a number of reasons through a course of conduct, which is not only President Biden's fault, but the fault of all of his predecessors. So we have dug ourselves into a position where the Chinese think they can do what they want. And that is a world we do not want to live in. But unfortunately, that's the world we face. And reestablishing deterrence is, history tells us, when a country tries to reestablish deterrence, it's the most dangerous times in history. And the reason is that arrogant aggressors don't believe us. This is the story, by the way, of 1939, right. where um, Britain and France threatened to go to war against the Third Reich if it invaded Poland. And we know from the archives that nobody in Berlin thought that Britain and France were um, as good as their word because they had not been as good as their word from a series of events starting in 1936. So there was war in Europe because the German um, establishment, military, political, completely, they just felt that Britain and France were just blowing hot air. That it would be more of the same acquiescence. Absolutely. So reestablishing deterrence, which is what we now have to do. This is not 1939 only. Right. What we have to do now is as dangerous, and even more so in the sense because the Chinese and others have nuclear weapons. Right. And the issue of Taiwan is sitting there as well as a, as a marker. Yes. It's not just Taiwan. At this moment, China um, is huffing and puffing with regard to Taiwan, but they're not going to really do anything because there's the January 13th national elections in Taiwan, not only for the presidency, but also for the national legislature. And China is using military pressure to try to convince Taiwan voters to vote for the candidates they favor in Beijing. But um, what we're seeing right now in the Philippines at Second Thomas Shoal, Scarborough Shoal and Whitson Reef Mm -hmm. are extremely dangerous activities on the part of China, um, some of which actually constitute acts of war. And what's even worse in the sense is that uh, the Philippines is a U.S. military treaty ally. We have a 1951 mutual defense treaty. We have an obligation to defend the Philippines. And to make this worse, the State Department has issued written warnings that the United States is prepared to use force to discharge our obligations under that treaty. And President Biden himself gave an oral warning on October 25th from the White House when he was welcoming the Australian ambassador that the U.S. was prepared to use force. And China has just ignored all of those warnings, continuing the escalation spiral. And that shows, again, deterrence is failing. Yeah. And while in some respects, that area of the world has tilted back toward the United States, like the relationship with Vietnam because of their concern over their China neighbor. I mean, that's we're seeing some of those things occur. Xi Jinping just went to Vietnam and the Vietnamese said all sorts of nice things. But in reality, um, Vietnam is moving much closer to the United States um, and views the United States as a security partner, although it can't formally acknowledge that. You remember, Vietnam and China have been um, fighting each other for centuries. Right. And by the way, the last time that these two countries went at it was 1979, where Vietnam's third string army really humiliated China's first string. So the Vietnamese, although they realize they've got to maintain good relations with China, they're not afraid of them. Right. But there, there's a complicated history between the two countries, for sure. Absolutely. 
let me step back and in, in looking at uh, we talked about uh, President Trump. We talked about President Biden looking at other candidates in the Republican nomination. Any thoughts on Governor DeSantis or Ambassador Haley when it comes to their positioning around China? Yeah, I don't do domestic politics. Um, and um, I'm not sure that we can discern what a President Haley or a President DeSantis would do. Um, but we can see that both of those candidates have made, I think, resolute and strong statements on China um, in comparison to others in the Republican field who have made comments which I think are, are less helpful um, and less well thought out. But, you know, this is a race where there appears to be only one candidate who is in this enormous lead. Now, we haven't had the Iowa caucuses. We haven't had any of the primaries. But the question is, is really, can either Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis catch up? We'll find out relatively quickly. But um, but both have taken some strong stances, uh, probably consi- more consistent with more of the Trump position than the Biden position uh, relative to China. Yes, yes. And um, their statements, I think, bode well. Gordon, how do you see this ultimately playing out? Because it it looks as though the Chinese Communist Party has a a strong, strong control over the country of China, and it, it doesn't appear to be going anywhere anytime soon. Do you see any of the economic slowdowns or the real estate bubble that China has experienced in any way making that regime insecure or possible change down the future? Uh, Certainly, I think it makes the Communist Party insecure. You know, when we look at the Chinese economy, um, we see certain things which have been causing stress. So, for instance, the core of the Chinese economy in in many ways is property, which accounted for 25% of gross domestic product last year, now down to 19%, which shows you the real problems. Um, but even former officials acknowledge that uh, the China is oversupplied. Um, a former deputy head of the Statistics Bureau in September in Guangdong province gave a public speech in which he said China has enough vacant apartments for the entire 1.4 billion people of China. Now, some people dispute that. Some people think that China has vacant apartments for far more than 1.4 billion But it shows you that property is um, going to continually drag down the Chinese economy. When we start looking at some of the numbers underlying the headline GDP reports, we can see an economy that is growing maybe 1%, uh, maybe 1.5%, could even be at zero, could even be contracting. But whatever it is, even if it were growing at the 5.2% pace that they claimed for the first three quarters of this year, which is the official National Bureau of Statistics report, it's still not fast enough to service China's debt. China decided not to have a 2008 downturn. And so it embarked on the biggest stimulus program in history. And to give you some sense of how big it was, one part of that program was just to create debt. Um, and, and what they did was, they in 2009 and the four following years, they created an amount of credit that was equal roughly to that in the entire U.S. banking system, even though in 2008, the Chinese economy was less than one third the size of ours. So, yes, they created growth, but now they're having their 2008. 
Right. And they don't really know what to do, especially because Xi Jinping is not a reformer in the sense that we would think. He is going back to more state control. He is trying to make sure that uh, domestic Chinese private entrepreneurs and foreign investors have less of a role in China. And as a result, um, there is pessimism in the foreign business community. Um, this is not economics. The Chinese technocrats know what to do. But they can't do it because Xi Jinping believes that, he, you know, China should move back to more of a Maoist model. And Maoism is not good for economic growth. It's good for state control. It's good for Communist Party power. But it's not good for creating economic output. And because of that, I think that uh, one should not view, have any sense of optimism about where the Chinese economy is growing, wherever it is right now. And as I said, nobody knows it. But whatever it is, um, it is on a downward trajectory. So, so given that thought, I'll leave you one last question. Given that thought, should we, are we fearing China and its economic prowess, coupled with its military and technology prowess? Uh, is that overblown uh, because uh, they have this overhang of huge debt and? structural issues that really involve dictatorial controls rather than quality economic policy on how to grow out of uh, uh, a debt-ridden situation and allow for growth. It doesn't appear to be, it's sort of anti-innovation because of the encouragement of foreign investment and even their own entrepreneurs have been stifled. Is our fear of China economically overblown because of those reasons? I think that the answer is yes. Um, I, I think that we we don't comprehend what's going on in China. Um, I'm not saying China is less of a threat to us. In many ways, a failing regime is more of a threat. More desperate. Um, and there's a lot of that one can talk about that. But we can see there's a lot of, um, there's severe infighting at the top of the Communist Party, both in the military and civilian ranks. And that is a recipe for all sorts of unexpected results. So we should, you know, we should put China in perspective. We should understand the risks. The risks may not be the ones that we now think they are, but the risks that China poses to the United States and the international system as a whole, I think, are greater than we currently perceive. Because of the potential instability in the future. Yes, um, because of the problems inside the regime, which gives Xi Jinping domestic incentives to do things that will take us by surprise. Remember, he's changed the political system, taking it from a consensual arrangement um, where nobody got too much credit or too much blame. He took power from everybody else, which means he's now got total accountability. And at the same time, he took a political system where if you lost a political struggle, it was no big deal. Now he's basically raise the cost of losing political struggles by jailing opponents, which means that at the same time that he now has total accountability, he knows that if he fails, he could lose everything and not just political power. So yes, Xi Jinping is under incentives to do things that could totally take us by surprise. I mean, is this akin to Russia uh, uh, or the Soviet Union? just prior to the Gorbachev administration when the United States under Reagan basically 
from an economic standpoint, simply overpowered and outspent the Soviet Union. And then the combination of that plus Glasnost sort of cracked the Soviet Union and the, and the communist threat, at least at that point. Are we seeing any of that possibility in the future? I see fragility of the Communist Party's system. Um, but we got to remember that uh, we were very lucky with the failure of the Soviet Union. You know, very few people lost their lives when the Communist Party abdicated in its essence. Because um, Gorbachev was a realist. Xi Jinping is not a realist. As a matter of fact, one of the first things that Xi Jinping did after becoming General Secretary of the Communist Party in 2012, in other words, China's ruler, he gave a secret speech to cadres in Guangdong province complaining about Gorbachev as not being, quote unquote, a real man, a person who was not defending Soviet ideology, and that he, Xi Jinping, um, was not Gorbachev. So we should not expect an easy ride um, as Communist Party fails in China. This could be you know, one of the most momentous events in history. So he effectively doubled and tripled down on their current system where Gorbachev moved on from a realistic standpoint. Absolutely. And we're seeing that with what Xi Jinping is doing with both domestic and foreign policies. So this is a much more volatile China. It's a much more dangerous China. And a weak China right now poses threats that I think most Americans do not understand. Gordon, I appreciate the time. I wanted to thank you so much. And we always appreciate your insights. And I hope we can speak with you again soon. Thank you so much. Well, thank you and stay safe. Politics and Sunshine is a production of the Fort Lauderdale law firm Trip Scott, serving Florida and beyond for over 50 years. Please be sure to like and share this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time for another fresh edition of Trip Scott's Politics and Sunshine.